Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing this morning? It's great to be with all of you. I'm excited to be up here. And before I get started with anything this morning, I want to give a little shout out to my little sister. Uh, her name's Julia Mead, and today is her 16th birthday. So, Julia. Happy birthday, Julia. I love you very much. Very proud of who you are today. And uh, today we're actually closing out an eight-part series. This has been long. I don't know about you. Peter, Peter asked me, he's like, do you want to close out the series? And I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll close out this long series. But I'm actually really excited about it. And this series has been called Christian, as you can see from up there. And uh, we start off this series saying that Christians and Christianity have a little bit of a branding problem. That if you pay attention to what our culture and what the world is saying about Christians and Christianity and the church, the summary is a bit like this. We are viewed as judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Okay, obviously some of you weren't here for the first week. So let me read that one more time because that's some great stuff right there. I don't know about you. That's some great stuff. We are viewed. You are viewed. There are people that will look at you and look at me and say, oh, I got, I got this. I could sum this whole thing up this way. Judgmental, homophobic moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. And then in the second week, we listened to a famous author. Her name was Anne Rice. And her summary of Christianity was after she decided to walk away. She decided to quit Christianity. And this is what she said. Christians are quarrelsome, hostile, and some of you really love this word, disputatious. This is actually in some of your vocabulary now. Hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. That for some people and that for so, for so many of us, this is our reputation. And we said from the beginning that part of our problem, part of our branding problem, is actually a terminology problem. That we are known as Christians, that we have called ourselves Christians, that we have grown up telling people that we are Christians. That maybe somebody invited you out to study the Bible, to become a Christian. And we discovered in those early weeks that the term Christian only appears in the Bible three times. That the word Christian only appears in the Bible three times in the New Testament. The term was actually a derogatory term that non-Jesus followers used to describe Jesus followers. So consequently, the term Christian isn't defined in the Bible. It's nowhere to be found. There's no definition for this word, which means you can be a Christian and you can believe anything that you want to believe. You can be a Christian and, be, and, and, and do whatever you want to do. There are Christians on both sides of every political issue. There are Christians on both sides of every social issue. And it's no wonder we have a branding problem because this word isn't defined for us. So consequently, we have defined it any way that we want. But as we open the pages of the Gospels, as we open the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus' life, we discover that Jesus didn't refer to his followers as Christians. We find that he refers to his followers as disciples. And unfortunately, 
This term is very narrowly defined. And unfortunately, if you decide to go with this term over Christian, there is no doubt about how you are to live your life. There is no doubt about what you are to believe or what you are to do or how you are to treat other people. So when Jesus gathered his handful of disciples at the end, after they had seen him for for all three years, after he had taught lessons, told parables, performed miracles, preached sermons, he gathered his closest followers in a room to share their their last Passover meal. And he began to say, this is it. This is it. This is my last chance, my last opportunity to say this one thing to you. And he boiled his ministry down to this one thing. He said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this, everyone will know that you are my, and here's our word, disciple, follower, learner, those who have signed on with me. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, I want people to say, oh, they must be Jesus' followers, not by what they believe, not by their Sunday morning church attendance patterns. But he wants you to be confused with, to be described as, to be defined as a follower of Jesus for one thing and one thing only. The way you treat others. And the way you treat other people. And one day when Jesus was actually teaching, and some people came to him with somewhat of a trick question. Now, they were always trying to trick Jesus with questions. But this is Jesus's, you know, this is his environment. You're not going to trick Jesus. He's God, right? You're not going to fool him. But sometimes Jesus wouldn't even answer their questions because he knew the intentions of why they were asking it. But on this particular occasion, they come to Jesus and they say, What in all the law, what in all the commandments is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And they had an answer in mind because of the tradition of the elders. And they had an answer in their mind because of the tradition of the teachers of the law. And they had a question that they knew the answer of, but they wanted to see how Jesus was going to answer this question. What is the greatest, most important law? There were over six hundred laws that the Jews had from the Old Testament. Jesus, which one of these laws is the most important law? And many of you remember how he answered this. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest Commandment. And before they could raise their hands to ask another question, he says, and the second is like it. And they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. We just asked you for one. But he said, yeah, I just can't give you one. I have to give you two because the second one is just as important as the first one. Or the second one goes with the first one. Or the second one, don't even try to pull off the first one without trying to pull off the second one. And so he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And before they could raise their hands to ask another question, Jesus said something of such extraordinary significance that I don't know how we've missed this. Twenty-five years later, the Apostle Paul would come back to this idea and he would write 
about this thing that Jesus had said next. 30 to 40 years later, the Apostle John would come back to this idea and he would write about what Jesus said next. And somewhere along the way, Jesus' disciples, all of us included, have lost sight of what Jesus said next. In verse 40, all the law and the prophets, all the law, all 613 laws. How would you like that? 613 laws, all 10 commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt obey your parents, teens and campus. Thou shalt not do all those things that thou shalt not do. And then you combine all those things with all the things that the teachers in the New Testament taught. Work as if you're working for the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. All the teachings of the prophets and all the teachings of the law that would follow. He says, hang on these two commandments. You know what that means? It means that every time we pick up our Bible, it means that every time we teach a lesson or every time we scramble around to look what we need to do in this situation, what does it say about them? What does it say about this? What does it say about my wife? What does it say about my husband? What does it say about raising children? What does it say about morality, sex? What does it say about anything? Jesus said, make sure you look at all those things through the filter of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Don't you dare use my law to unnecessarily disenfranchise and hurt people. Don't you do that. Because all the law and the prophets hang, hinge, are filtered through this one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So all that last week brought us to this one big idea. It brought us to this one big question. And the question was this. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? In other words, if the big idea is people are going to know if I'm Jesus' follower by the way I treat other people. If the whole idea is that every thou shalt and thou shalt not has to be viewed through the filter of treat others how you want to be treated. Then I need to ask the question every single day of my wife, of your husbands, your children, the people I work for and the people you report to. What does love require of me? And this is a game changer. This will change your life. For many of you who grew up in the church like I did. Maybe this is such a game changer for those of you who have been in the church for a while. Maybe you've been disciple for years. This is a game changer because my tendency is to look at the commands and forget the intentions of the commander. My tendency is to pick up the Bible and says and say it's it says you ought to do this. It's to pick up the Bible and say you have to do this and look what it says right here. And Jesus says, before you get there, before you even think about answering those questions, you have to ask this question, what does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? This is primary. What does love 
require of each of you individually. And even if you're not ready to step into this, whether you're a disciple or not this morning, you owe it to yourself and every single relationship, every single conflict, every single conversation to at least ask the question, what would love require of me? Now, in the next few minutes, I want to, in in the best of my ability, to try to explain to you how extraordinary brilliant all of this is. How extraordinary, extraordinarily brilliant it was for Jesus, who had a handful of disciples, a handful of followers. He had no influence. He had no leverage at the beginning of his ministry. He's in sort of the armpit of the Roman Empire. Nobody cares. Nobody's paying attention. He could have said anything that he wanted to say. And yet this message that God gave him began what we would eventually call the Jesus movement, which it would later be called the church. I mean, there are so many things that Jesus could have said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you fill in the blank. Yet the brilliance of this statement is actually found in our own personal experience. Let me put it this way. There are two categories of people that have influenced your life profoundly. Two categories of people that have influenced your life profoundly. In other words, there are two categories of people that have made you the father that you are today. There are two categories of people that have made you the kind of mother that you are today. There are two categories of people who have set you up to be successful or not so successful in your personal relationships and in your dating relationships. There are two categories of people that have set you up to be able to relate to people successfully. Or they have set you up in such a way where you will always perhaps struggle. And the interesting thing is this. This is so interesting. These two categories of people did not influence you deeply because of what they believed. It's not because of what they believed that had the impact on your life. They didn't impact your future, your future and send you into life successfully. Or cause you to maybe have to limp through life until you could mature and grow past their influence on you. It wasn't what they believed. It had nothing to do with their theology. It wasn't even whether or not they were Christian. It, was whether, it wasn't even whether or not they were religious or they even went to church consistently. The two categories of people who have had more influence on your life are those who have hurt you and those who have loved you. The two people that have had more influence on your life than anyone else are the people that have hurt you and those who have loved you. Those who have hurt you deeply and those who have loved you profoundly. When you find yourself in in counseling because you bump up against something that you can't get past, a good counselor takes you right here. He takes you right here. And you know what is so confusing about this is that for many of you and for many of us today... We have been hurt deeply by people who had an accurate theology, haven't we? We have been hurt deeply by people who believed all the right things. We, we were hurt deeply by people who never missed a Sunday at church. We, we were hurt deeply by people who knew every single scripture for every single sin that you ever committed. You were hurt deeply by people who from the outside, they looked like fine, upstanding citizens. 
But behind the scenes, they just took the life out of you. Destroyed your soul. Set you up for an adult experience that has been so painful and so difficult that you would say, I feel like I sort of have to limp my way through life because I have been hurt so deeply. On the flip side, some of you have entered adulthood with such extraordinary confidence, with an extraordinary amount of self-esteem and potential and an outlook on life because somebody, guess what? They loved you. Somebody loved you. And you know what? Their theology wasn't all that sophisticated. They couldn't find every chapter and verse in the Bible. They weren't able to you know, find all these chapters and verses. They couldn't tell all the stories. They may have not even been all that consistent with going to church. But they gave you something that sets you up for success in your future. That is so beyond theology. That is so beyond belief. They loved you. They loved you profoundly. It may have been a parent. Could have been a coach, a teacher, someone who came alongside you in a small group. And for the first time in your life, you experienced unconditional love that you've never experienced. And when you tell your story, you tell a story of hurt and you tell a story of love. You tell a story of the individuals where you felt and you experienced something with them that spoke to spoke directly to your soul. And as a result, you husband, you wife, you parent, you relate and you lead from the doses of these two categories of people. The way you live your life is a result of these two categories of people. Let me put it this way. The way you've been treated has more to do with who you are than what you believe. This morning, every single one of you, the way you have been treated in your life has more to do with who you are this morning than what you believe. This is why what Jesus said is so extraordinarily profound. And that is why it is so extremely important that those of us who are his followers get this. This is our greatest play. This is our greatest opportunity. This is our greatest leverage. But somewhere along the way, there was a shift from behave to believe. In the beginning of the church, when Jesus launched his movement, it was all about how you love, how you love, how you love. Over time, it became all about how you believe, how you believe. How you believe if we would simply do what Jesus did instead of arguing about what Jesus said, the world would change. If we would just do what Jesus did. Instead of focus so much on what he said and argue about it, the world would change. The reputation of disciples would change. The influence of the church would change. And, and, and here's the thing. Believing, this is easy. It requires almost nothing from you. But behaving, this requires almost a brand new worldview. Here's what Jesus didn't say. I like this. Jesus didn't say this. A new command I give you. Believe correctly. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you believe correctly. 
Do you know how much time and energy and publishing has been spent around people who say they follow Jesus, arguing with each other about exactly what Jesus meant by what Jesus said? But in the beginning, it wasn't that way. It was simple. It was love one another. It was constantly coming back to this question. What does love require of me? What does love require of you? It's brilliant because Jesus knew the heart of men. And over and over and over and over in the New Testament, Jesus knew the hearts of men. Every time Jesus interacted with an individual, this is so powerful to me. He interacted with them based on their story. Jesus interacted with people based on their story. Come on, we've all had this experience. You know, someone irritates you. You don't like someone. They get on your nerves. But when you hear their story, what happens to your heart? It changes. Well, why does he do that? And why does he act that way? And why does she do that? And why does she act that way? But when you hear their story, your whole entire attitude changes, doesn't it? Imagine being Jesus. Imagine Jesus and every interaction that he had with an individual. He interacted with them as an individual and he interacted with their story in mind. And he answered in the question in every conversation, what does love require of me? With this person, what does love require of me? You know why Jesus was so inconsistent? Why Jesus was so maybe fierce with one group, yet he was so compassionate with another? There was a rich man, he said, you have to sell everything you have to get this right. Then come follow me. To another rich man, he said, you're close. Whoa, 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 Jesus. Why didn't you tell him to sell everything that he has? Because they're two different people. Two different stories. Two different hearts. And I don't have a list of verses that I just throw at everybody that I come into interaction with. And I look at their story and I ask the question, in light of what I've been through, and in light of who I am, and in light of who they are, and what they have been through, what does love require of me? Can you imagine what would happen to our families? Can you imagine what would happen to our community? Or what would happen to our nation? If those of us who, would call, who call ourselves disciples would put down all of our weapons, would put down all of our objections, would put down all of our theology and decided, you know what, from this point forward, I'm going to ask the question, what does love require of me? I'm going to put all those weapons away and ask this one question. Because if you would like to see someone change, if you would like to influence, influence their future, you basically have two options. You can hurt them deeply or you can love them profoundly. You can hurt them deeply or you can love them profoundly. It is not what you believe. It is how you treat them. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the way you treat other people. So I want to give you three statements. I want to take this question 
of what does it require of me. I want to take this out of the realm of what does love require of me to the next level by asking this one simple yet challenging question. How do we live this out? How do you and I practically live this out? So I want to take this question of what does love require of me? And I want to give you three statements this morning. I want to give you three handles as we begin to ask the question, how do we get better at simply not just believing the right things, but treating people in a way that heals their hurt and points them toward Jesus who loved them so much? He died for them. He died for you. Three statements. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Don't do anything that will hurt someone else. And don't be mastered by anything. What does love require of you? Love requires of you that you don't do anything that will hurt you. You know why? Because your heavenly father loves you and you can't do anything to you that doesn't hurt him. Just like I can't do anything to myself that doesn't hurt my dad. Just like your children can't do anything to themselves without hurting you. You know why? Because you love them. You love them. You know what love requires of you? Love requires of you that you never make a moral decision, a sexual decision, an ethical decision, a relational decision, or professional decision that hurts you. Because when you hurt you, you hurt the one and the ones that love you the most. Well, you say, that's just between me and me, Mike. Stay out of my business. No, it's not just between you and you. Because you're loved. It's not just between you and you. Your actions and your sin have a consequence on the people around you. Because people love you. It's not just your life. It's not just your world, your relationships. It's not just your profession. Or reputation. Your heavenly father loves you. And love requires that you respond to his love. By loving yourself. By taking care of yourself. That you don't do anything that hurts you. What does love require of you? Love requires that you don't do anything that will hurt someone else. I'm talking about your interpersonal relationships. The relationships that you have around you. Your small group. Your friends that you hang out with. I'm saying that you decide, regardless of how I understand the world and, and, and regardless of how I understand my Christianity, I'm just going to make the decision to not do anything or say anything that will hurt another person. And here's why. Because every person you ever come eye to eye with is, is someone who God sent his son to die for. Every person that you interact with is, God, is someone that God loves just as much as he loves you. I'm sorry to burst your bubble this morning. Everyone you ever speak to, even your worst enemies, the people who have hurt you deeply, are people for whom Christ died. And I realize this is tricky. This is tricky because it involves two things. It involves confession and confrontation. And we don't like those two. It involves confrontation and confession, and they both hurt. But sometimes loving the way you need to love is like a scalpel, but it is never like taking out a knife. Sometimes loving the way you, you, you need to love is not 
like taking out a knife. It is like taking out a scalpel. Do you know what love requires of you? That you decide once and for all that the filter through which your words will come, that the filter through which your actions will come, that I'm not going to do anything to hurt, tempt, betray, deceive, abuse, or hurt anyone. You know what love requires of you? That you don't be mastered by anything. You know why? Because when you are mastered by something, it keeps you from loving someone. When you are mastered by something, it keeps you from being loving someone. No one should have to compete with your alcohol. No one should have to compete with your porn. No one should have to compete with your, your prescription drug addiction. No one should have to compete with your temper or your anger. No one should have to compete with any of that. Don't be mastered by anything. Refuse to be mastered because God is your master. Do you know what love requires of you? Love requires of you that you get rid of everything in your life that competes with His Lordship in your life. That you get rid of it. Anything. Because as long as you are mastered, you cannot love people. You cannot love anyone as long as you are mastered. So don't do anything that hurts you. Don't do anything that will hurt someone else. Be mastered. By nothing. And that's easy for me to say, isn't it? I can stand up here and say that all day long. But the funny thing is, you know what some of you have just done? Some of you have just thought about other people. Some of you thought of other people. I'm glad my husband is here to listen to this message. I'm glad my team is here to listen to this message. I'm going to have them listen to this a few more times today. Yet, isn't that the perspective that has caused you to be hurt so deeply by those who call themselves Christians? What if we just decide that we're going to let God work with them and we focus on ourselves? And we decided, I'm not going to hurt me. And whatever it takes to get to a place where I'm not hurting me, I'm going to go there. I'm going to get counseling. I'm going to get, go confess. I'm going to get help. I'm breaking these habits. I'm not going to do anything that will hurt anyone else any longer. And where I have, I'm going to confess. And where I am, and I, they still don't know that I am, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to get out the scalpel. And it's going to be a bit painful. It's going to be challenging, but it's going to lead to healing. And I'm going to confront some people because I have not loved them. I have let them get by with things and someone needs to confront them and I haven't confronted them. Someone needs to love them and I haven't loved them. You are not loving people when you back away from confronting something in their life. You're saying, oh, I'm just accepting them for who they are. You're not helping them. You're not loving them. It's making the decision that I'm going to confront them. And it's painful and it's challenging, but it's a scalpel. It's not a knife. And I'm not going to continue to hurt them by remaining silent. And love requires of you that I'm not going to be mastered by anything. So here's the deal. And here's what I think Jesus was getting at 
And here's what I think we've lost sight of. When we leverage anything other than love, when the church leverages anything other than love, when his followers and his disciples leverage anything other than love, we lose our leverage. We lose our influence. And my friends, we have lost our leverage. We have lost our influence and we have lost and are losing our leverage in the world right now. And it's not because of politics. It's not because of whether you're a Republican. It's not because you're a Democrat. It's not because of denominations. It's not because of any of that. Many, 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 many decades ago, when the church got into power, and when the church had the influence, and when the church had the money, and when the church had the control, and they had the ability to influence government, and when the church had the ability to influence politics, we abandoned love and we began to leverage something else. And on that day, whenever that happened, we began to lose our leverage. You see, it wasn't always that way. Once upon a time, there was a handful of disciples and all they had was love one another. That's all they had. Love one another. Listen, these were groups of people who had no Bible. These were groups of people that didn't have any books. They didn't have commentaries. They didn't have literature or publishing or radio or television. They had nothing. But time after time after time, they backed into this one simple idea. What if we love one another? What if we love one another? What if we never lose sight of the intent of the commander by getting hung up on the commands? What if we love one another? And that is the filter through which we interpret all the scriptures in the Bible. And my friends, we know from history, this is how the West was won. This is how a culture was influenced. This is how a paganism that is so far beyond our imagination was turned upside down. Not because the leverage of power and influence and esteem and, and wealth and status, but because they leveraged all they had. Love one another. That's it. And nobody felt coerced because there was no, nothing to coerce anybody with. Nobody felt coerced because there was nothing in which you can coerce people with. But they felt drawn. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. No one's going to push you in and no one's going to push you away. No one's going to push you in the back into the water and no one's going to drag you from the front into the water. And we know that people felt guilty, but they didn't feel condemned. They felt guilty because they looked at marriages and they looked at relationships that were so profoundly different. They discovered a work ethic that was so profoundly different. They saw a richness of relationship and such incredible generosity that was so profoundly different. And the pagans in the first century, they felt guilty because they knew they weren't as good as these people, but somehow they didn't feel condemned. And if that ever describes my life, and if that ever describes your life, and if that is ever the description of our church again, we will have leverage like we can't even imagine. 
the impact and the influence of our lives will be so far beyond of what you could ever imagine. But the moment we abandon love as our leverage point, we ultimately lose our leverage. You cannot preach and legislate people into a relationship with Jesus. You cannot preach people into loving other people. You can't preach people out of an addiction. You can't preach people and legislate people out of a habit. None of that happens through preaching. None of that happens through legislation. It only happens when it is seen and it is so attractive that it is almost irresistible. Where people look at you and you go, I want to be just like that person. I want to go there. I want to be a part of that group. I want to be just like them. So maybe we will be the generation. How about that? Maybe we will be the beginning of a generation that somehow is satisfied to ask the question in every interaction, what does love require of me? And maybe it could be said of us as it was said of the first century Christians. By this, everyone will know we, we, we are his disciples if we love one another, if we love the people in this world. And maybe, maybe we will be a part of the rebranding of Christianity. Let me pray for the communion. Father, thank you so much for this morning. That we have so much to be grateful for. And I pray that this morning as we examine ourselves, that we see that, God, we have been impacted by two groups of people. There are people that have hurt us and there are people who have loved us. And God, so many of us have said, oh, this series has been so helpful. But I pray that we will not walk out these doors and forget what we have heard. That we will not be like a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like once he walks away. That's why we have the reputation we have as Christians. But I pray that we will walk out of here and that we will make a decision that we will love people and that we will ask the question, what does love require of us? God, help us to understand what that means. And I pray that we will not be mastered by anything, that we will not do anything to hurt ourselves and that we will not do anything to hurt other people. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died and gave us this chance. I love you, and it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.